Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm going to start with my uh, opening plug, which is please, if you like this show, if you find it really valuable and helpful to you, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews we get, then the more people will be able to find us and also access our information. So appreciate if you would do that. Um, We have, as I think we always do, a great show planned for you today. Um, A big chunk of the show is going to be devoted to answering your questions questions. Um, We've gotten a lot of good stuff from you on Instagram, on Facebook, uh, directly to our email address. So we appreciate you sending those in and we're going to do our best to get to as many of them as possible today. But before we get to that, we um, regularly or from time to time anyway, and we ask people to come on and share their experiences in a particular profession that we know is interesting to many of the students that we talk with. And um, Today, I'm particularly excited because we're talking about the nursing profession. And um, full disclosure, my mom was a nurse uh, and actually taught nursing at our local community college for basically the entirety of her career. So I have a particular affinity for both the profession and the study of nursing. And so I'm thrilled to welcome not my colleague, but the husband of my colleague, um, Aman Kubran, to the show today to share his experiences. In, in getting into a nursing program and then working uh, as a nurse. Hi, Aman. Hi. Pleasure Thanks. to be on the show. Absolutely. Well, we're thrilled that you could take uh, the time because I know that you're busy. As you said, you uh, got off uh, a shift yesterday. And so I appreciate you getting up this morning to to speak with us today. Um, and I thought we could start where all stories start, which is, um, you know, what led you to nursing? How did you wind up in this profession? Sure. So I, um, I should say I am a, got into nursing as a sort of second degree. I originally uh, got my bachelor's in international affairs and didn't be as practical as one would say in terms of uh, the uh, marketplace. Sure. Less, it gave me, I think, a well-rounded liberal arts education. And I, um, was working in Boston with homeless men and women, I guess, in the city of Cambridge. And I interfaced with quite a few nurses. I was a case manager. And so I was directly seeing um, the social determinants of health. That's a mm-hmm. word for saying, you know, how does someone's education, their um, income level, their um, access to food, nutrition, how do those things impact one's ability to maintain their health? And so I was regularly having nurse practitioners come in and do, you know, education about diabetes and hypertension and, you know, the effects of smoking. And that got me interested in sort of like uh, nursing, really. I have uh, that are uh, nurses as well, but I'd always kind of discounted it. Um, And so it was really until I had my own professional exposure that I became more interested in it and uh, starting classes at the local community college really fell in love with uh, anatomy and physiology and those sort of combination of uh, experiences allowed me to successfully get into a nursing, several nursing programs. And uh, from there, you know, uh, on the job training. Right. Absolutely. Uh, where I am now, I've been an ICU nurse my entire nursing career. Uh, so that's, I'm going into my seventh year. Uh, and so um, it's been very rewarding, very exciting. Um, and, so many avenues of nursing that are, uh, you can change. There's lots of flexibility uh, in terms of specialties and where you want to go and um, the ability to really have a, a meaningful, long-lasting career. Right. And, and it's interesting that you bring up that that ability to change and the, you know, you've been an ICU nurse your entire career. I do feel like when we think about nursing collectively, you think about 
people who are in the hospital assisting doctors, right? And I think that nursing, I don't think, I know that nursing is so much more than that. And I I started to get real insight into that when I was an admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania that has a nursing program. And I saw all the kind of cool things that students could do out of nursing, which I needed to learn about so I could talk to students about that possibility. And I just, you know, what what led you to, to settle on ICU as your area of focus? And do you see a path where you might choose something different in the future? And and why? Yeah, so I initially was interested in becoming a uh, CRNA. That's a, mm-hmm. a sort of a graduate degree program in anesthesia that nurses can pursue. And that requires ICU experience. Um, and over time, I have kind of shied away from that just because I have loved the diversity of my experiences at the bedside. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, anesthesia, love them, uh, but it tends to be, you know, certain things. And I get a lot more diversity in, you know, the type of patients I'm going to see, what I'm going to be, what my day is going to be like. And I'm a person that highly, that values diversity quite highly. I don't want to be doing the same thing day in, day out. And Mm -hmm. one of the rewarding aspects of, of nursing is that each day I may come in and my uh, assignment may be different depending on the needs of the unit. Um, and certain nurses, let's say their flow pool. So they, these are nurses that are going to be every day, even maybe even in the middle of the shift going to be their assignment may be changed and they're going to have to adapt. Um, and that's uh, something that I really think is very crucial. And I think just in life, being able to adapt to changing circumstances. Right. And I can imagine that nursing requires that pretty much like you just shared, right? All the time, every All day. All the time. Yes. 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 Got it. So do you see that you, it sounds like you are never bored as an ICU nurse. Do you see that there might be a time where you want a little bit less of the change or for right now that it would be hard to imagine giving up that diversity of the patients that you're working with? Well, I'd never use the, the board, the B word or the uh, Q word quiet uh, on shift because nurses can be a, a superstitious bunch, but uh, you never want to invite uh, a <laughs> chaos yes you just and just particularly i'd say with the pandemic you know if the day is a little more calm we like the words calm that's okay these days i'm okay um and there's lots of things you can do at the bedside um so i will you know yesterday was a fairly calm day so it gives you more of an opportunity to get to know what is going on with your patients reading mm-hmm. notes looking up the pathophys of what's going on and you just could have an opportunity to learn. And I think that's the, I think the really exciting aspect of medicine in general is that um, it is, it's a science, right? Mm-hmm. And it's an evolve, it's always an evolving science. So there's always an opportunity to learn and different providers will have different sort of lens and perspectives. So you at the bedside have to kind of rectify uh, one special saying we should pursue this course of action, another saying we should pursue this course of action. And you're kind of trying to say, hmm, what do, based on my understanding, what do I think? And sometimes you, the role of nursing is to just have a, let's reconvene everybody. And what is our, uh, our sort of, uh, what is our plan for this patient? Right, right. All get on the same page. They'll have a little sort of care team meeting. What do we think is the most appropriate action? What seems reasonable? And there's a lot with medicine that there's an art and there, there's a science and there's an art. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of different ways is, you know, the adage says you can skin a cat, right? You can achieve the end outcome uh, potentially multiple different ways. And that's where the, I would say, a really skilled nurse can kind of view the whole, or like the whole picture and say, okay, we need to get these things done from the nursing perspective. Um, what about if we try this? This may be in the best interest of the patient or this is less onerous, or this is more feasible, or kind of looking at the whole picture and saying, yeah, that seems like we can all come up with a plan, or this is what the patient is expressing. How can we get closer to realizing their wishes or their their wants? Got it. Got it. That, what do you, that's really, an, I think, an interesting perspective about a nurse's role, what it can be in the process. 
What do you say if you're asked or for people who are considering a profession in the medical field, but are very focused on being a doctor? And in your opinion, you know, I guess what I'm really asking is for those students who are very hung up on the idea that they love medicine and they therefore need to be doctors, what is your take on being, you know, the the important role that nurses are playing that differs from what life might be like as a doctor? I would say that, um, you know, these days in medicine, there's quite a bit more, one of the things is liability. I know that a lot of providers will talk about their liability about different things. And one of the, the freedoms as a nurse in my institution is I don't really think about the liabilities. I have a scope of practice and I always have to think, is this within my scope of practice? Um, so I can't, you know, I can't order medications. I can't do things outside of my scope. Someone else has to do those things, but I can suggest these things and say, Hey, I think this would be in their best interest. And it allows me to really focus right on the needs of, you know, in my case, one or two patients. As a physician, you may have a caseload that anywhere from, uh, if you're a hospitalist, maybe that's 15, 20, 30. Um, If you're a critical care doctor, whoever's in the unit, maybe that's, you know, 10, 6. But you're looking at a much broader group of people, and I like honing in and focusing on, know, one or two patients. And so you really get to know them. That's where you spend the bulk of your time is directly providing care, getting to know, talking with family, talking with the patient. And uh, as a physician, you may not have the, that time to really uh, invest in your patients. This is the reality of today's demands. Right. So if you're one of your driving reasons for getting into the medical profession is to be in that helping role, to be in that care role, then nursing sounds like the role to be in, that's really going to put you right front and center with the patient. So um, thank you for that, for that um, perspective that I think a lot of us don't always get. So in terms of we've got students out there listening or maybe parents listening and going to be talking about this with their students, what advice do you have um, for those who are thinking about nursing as a profession? I think that one of the crucial things for anyone entering in um, healthcare is to have exposure. Um, that's challenging, I know, for many probably right now in the context of the pandemic because, you know, in my institution, we're not allowing visitors. We've rolled back our visitor uh, policy. So I'm not even sure we're allowing volunteers to come into the hospital, mm-hmm. um, which means it'll be uh, you need to do quite a bit of fact finding. So asking your parents for uh, colleagues, asking your friends, trying to talk with people in healthcare professions, be that respiratory therapist, allied health, physical therapy, occupational therapy, anyone that's really kind of, I'd say, um, involved in patient care is someone to be talking about what is it like um, and getting the information. Because there are lots of things that also I would say in the context of nursing that aren't less desirable, right? I, there's moral distress as you, sometimes you're seeing things happen to, because people are, I would say many people um, have, are not adapted with this mindset that we will all eventually die. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes futile care happens to people towards the end of their lives because people aren't ready to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And so that can be distressing. Um, also deal with uh, these days in, in healthcare, quite a bit of uh, definitely emotional assault, but also physical assault. Mm-hmm. Um, my colleague the other day was assaulted by a patient. Eesh. And so, you know, it, it, there is violence, I would say in the, in the workplace there is, and of course all of the bodily uh, bodily fluids and functions that, um, People may not like. So um, you have to, I think, get a good sense of what it is you're walking into. And I think that'll give lend itself some credibility uh, to someone that wants to uh, is applying to nursing school or to really anything. You know, if you're going into medical school, uh, you know, being a scribe in an emergency department 
even if you want to go to nursing, being a scribe, being a CNA would be uh, something I would encourage you to uh, encourage a person to look into. And, and you took obviously a little bit more of a circuitous route to nursing. As you mentioned, it's a second degree for you. So there are obviously multiple pathways to nursing. Um, you know, any, any final thoughts, advice around that piece of things as, as students prepared? You know, many of them probably will apply directly to nursing programs. And these days, a lot of nursing programs require that you start in nursing. Um, so, you know, that's a traditional path. I don't know if you have other thoughts about other pathways that people could take to nursing that you've seen maybe colleagues of yours do. Yeah, I've seen people go get their associate's degree and then gradually uh, get into the workplace or get into some uh, workplace. So a nursing home, for example, and then work on a bachelor's and then move to, um, you know, inpatient settings. I think uh, as many different ways you can get experiences valuable. I think in general life experience, because um, we're talking about when you're caring for people, having uh, life experience has been immensely valuable. So my interface as I interface with people, right, that homeless case management, social services background is immensely valuable to me. Um, right. Because it's just, again, the ability to connect to individuals. Yeah. And, and to get what are, you, what are your needs? How can I help you? How can we advance your care? Because yeah. really there's a, also a, a partnership, I would say, between the patient and the nurse. Hey, these are the things we kind of need you to, to work on. We need to get out of bed today. It's going to be painful. I can help try to manage the, the pain through medications and through other things. But, you know, you got to get out of bed because movement is medicine. And the only people that don't move are dead people. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a good one. That would work for me. Yeah. That would get me out of bed. Aman, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experiences and your perspectives on nursing. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And I look, uh, you know, if you want to have me back, this was fun. So I'd be glad I'd be welcome to uh, come back if you'll have. (laughs) All right. Absolutely. Well, we'll field questions from our listeners and see if there's um, we can gather a bunch and then maybe we'll have you come back and answer all of those for them. So you heard the man. If you have questions for him, send them in and then we can we can have him back to talk some more about this profession with all of you. Um, right now, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to answer questions that are not related to nursing because you haven't sent those in yet. Um, so don't go away. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. 
Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Um, my colleague and former financial aid officer at BU and Tufts, Shannon Vasconcelos, is here today. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thank you. All right, you and I are going to do questions and answers as we very frequently do. Um, yes. We have a lot. We and do. Those, those listeners or watchers uh, of our show know that we are very verbose, and already I'm doing this. So we're going to try really hard to keep it short and sweet today, and with that, I'm going to yeah. zip it so you can ask me the first question. Absolutely. Uh, first question comes in from Jennifer. Will a highly selective school that deferred only a small number of students from their early decision round, about 10% deferrals, take into account that the student applied ED when making a decision in the regular decision round? This is assuming that the student sent a letter of continued interest. Does it make a difference uh, if the school uh, does or does not consider demonstrated interest? So this one's a little interesting to me because I do, I almost wonder if you're talking about the early decision round or the single choice early action round, because I don't know of many highly selective schools that only defer 10%. Um, however, my experience is that, yes, it's taken into consideration that the student um, did commit to that institution. Um, if the student hasn't already, I would follow up with a letter of continued interest. And I would mention that um, if the student is still very much committed to attending that institution, I would say say that. Literally, I would say I will attend if admitted. Um, obviously, the early decision commitment is no longer binding. You know, that's been lifted at this point. So technically speaking, they can't hold you to that. But the goal is really, if you truly want to be at this school, there's no reason for them to be in doubt about it. So I would say that. Um, but, you know, does that mean that the students who were deferred will have more of a shot of getting in? Generally speaking, no. Usually, once you're deferred from that early decision round, those students typically have about the same chance of getting in as everyone who applied in the regular decision round. The, uh, you know, the advantage more or less goes away. But they are going to see it. And like I said, you could send that letter of continued interest. Perfect. And I think a related question came in from Julie, another question about deferrals. I'm employed by our local high school as a college consultant. I help students apply for a college and scholarships. Great. Uh, just like us. <laughs> One yeah. of the students I helped has been deferred by Harvard. This happened to her brother last year, and he ultimately got in after also being waitlisted. So he overcame all the odds. Yes, uh, he did. <laughs> her mom is a Harvard grad. Do you recommend setting, sending a letter or retaking the ACT? This student had scored a 31 composite. Or sending any other documentation now to her regional admissions counselor expressing her desire and intent to attend if she's admitted. Thank you. I listen to your show regularly and it helped me with my own daughter who graduated high school last year. Well, that's very exciting. I love that you listen to us regularly, Julie. Would you consider dropping a line at Apple Podcasts and reviewing <laughs> us? We would love that. Um, and I also love that we have people who are in the field, school counselors and consultants who are working with students listening to the show. So we appreciate that. Um, so I think we should forget what happened with the brother. He really did, as you said, Shannon, kind of overcome all of the odds. Certainly Harvard um, does, like many schools, have a slight affinity for alum children. And, you know, again, I don't, you're not really asking. And so I'm not necessarily going to comment on does that play a factor? Does it not? It plays a little bit of a factor. But if, for the intents and purposes of what you were asking today, I would say yes. <laughs> so first of all, I, I would not probably have sent that ACT score. A 31 is quite low for Harvard. A 31 is great, but in the Harvard pool, not. And so I would, I would really assess how likely it is the student could do more in the 34 and really honestly the 35 or 36 range. If that's not reasonable to imagine the student's going to up that score four to five points, I would probably say no to that piece. I would probably, you know, maybe retake it and see if that score could even get 
a 33 or something like that. But um, that what's done is done there. But I absolutely would um, send an, a letter of continued interest, just like what I was talking about with the previous question, you know, reiterating the uh, anything new that's happened since the student applied, um, anything particularly maybe picking one element that the student is particularly looking forward to about Harvard and um, sort of taking advantage of that opportunity at Harvard and reiterating the student's interest in attending, continued interest in attending. So um, that's the that's the only additional documentation that I would send uh, unless Harvard is specifically asking for something additional, um, you know, Generally speaking, new letters of recommendation, updated essays, things like that are not a welcome part of the deferral process. It's more, are you still interested? Send that letter. Um, If you do have something new, updated grades, new test scores, things like that, that would be appropriate to go ahead and send. Perfect. All right, Shannon, this question comes from Mark. Um, I've seen a couple of stories on the news recently about lawsuits against colleges, um, one about financial aid price fixing and one about affirmative action and admissions. What's your take on these suits? And as a parent of a high school junior, should I be paying attention to what happens? So this obviously has two components. Shannon, why don't you take the finance piece? Yeah, so this is an interesting lawsuit that that came out a couple weeks ago, and it has they have sort of brought up charges or there is a group of former students suing a group of colleges, um, big name selective schools, Notre Dame, Dartmouth, Georgetown, Vanderbilt, uh, Penn, where you used to work, Beth, is in, yes. is in the mix. Uh, and it's basically a suit based um, alleging that they have violated antitrust laws by working together um, on financial aid policy. It has this basis and all of these um, schools are members of this group called the 568 Presidents Group. Uh, It is a group of um, schools that came together back in 1998. The group was officially founded. They decided to all work together to um, come up with what they call consensus methodology uh, policies for awarding their financial aid. Um, And they were able, this group has so far um, been allowed to sort of to work together in this way, not in violation perhaps, of antitrust laws, because there is an exemption in um, some of the legislation that says schools that are need blind are allowed to work together on financial aid policies. Um, and so what this suit is alleging is that these the schools in question are not actually need blind because perhaps they are considering families' finances when it comes to uh, accepting, accepting students to certain programs, um, accepting students off of their wait list, perhaps, and perhaps giving some preference in their admissions process to uh, very wealthy families who have donated lots of money to the school. So th- that's, that's the basis of the suit. Um, what will come of it? I don't know. Um, But essentially, the allegation is, well, I think there's sort of pros and cons to this consensus methodology that that this group has. They will tell you they they get together and decide on a consensus financially um, awarding policy or need analysis policy, I should say, because it, it will help students applying to, you know, multiple of these schools. They should, in theory, not see wide variations, and that helps to have consistency, clarity for students. They can pick the school that is best for them, kind of taking the, the finances out of the picture. Um, so that's why the existence of this group might be good for some students. On the other hand, you know, why this is good for the schools is they don't have to compete as much on price. Um, and you know, that could be bad for families. You know, if schools have to compete on price, theoretically, that should lower prices, you know, overall. So, so that's kind of what's sort of behind this whole lawsuit. Um, 
does it matter to you? You know, is this something you should be paying a lot of attention to? You know, as an individual, probably not. You know, most students are not attending these particular uh, you know, 21 schools that are that are part of this group, and again, fewer of those are part of the lawsuit. Um, you know, my, if the plaintiffs win here, might financial aid policy change at that tiny group of schools? Maybe. Um, what I what I think is most kind of interesting about this this suit to to parents um, or students going through this process is I think it sort of brings to light kind of the the power that families have and the kind of the lesson that while we tend to focus on like students competing for spots at this small group of schools, at the same time, colleges are competing to attract students. Um, and, you know, this lawsuit is alleging that they're trying to limit <laughs> that, that competition. Um, but I think the lesson to you is colleges are competing for you. Uh, whatever happens with this lawsuit, you know, Use the power that you have. Apply to schools where they're going to fight over you, <laughs> you know, where right. they're going to attract you with lots of discounts, where you can negotiate for more. That is the thing. You know, I'll be interested to see what comes of this lawsuit, but I think on the, the big picture, that's the lesson that, that families should take from it. Right. Um, yeah. No, I mean, the only, the only piece that I would add to that is just that um, – the, the schools named in the suit are very difficult to get into. They don't really have to compete for you. And <laughs> yes. so the downside, I think, of them being, you know, of this, and, and again, you know, is it great? Is it a great look? No. Is it, was it done for good reasons? I actually do think it was, not to give them too much credit. But, you know, again, to your point, it does mean that they don't. But really who this was designed to help are those people who can't afford to write a check for $80,000 every year. And what could happen is that it could open it up to be that if you can write the check for 80000 that you are automatically going to be even more competitive at those schools. Like in addition to the advantages that you've had throughout your life <laughs> that have made you a better candidate, that this could make that even more, um, that disparity could grow. Um, as a maybe not. Well, I guess we'll see how financial right. aid <laughs> offices kind of respond to this. But, but you know, the whole concept of the need blind practice. It is probably true that in the end, is it totally? I mean, if you are admitting, yeah. if you are admitting high, like what we would call development cases, where you've donated significant sums of money to the school and have the likelihood that you will donate quite a bit more. Those are what we would call donation. Don't you know? Um, Oh my gosh, development cases. <laughs> yes. And that's, this is what people are always referring to when they, the throwaway line, they, there's buildings named for them on campus, which yes. by the way, that is really a very, very small percentage of the yes. development cases. Yes. But even the development cases don't make up a huge number at all. And their dollars, the argument is funds things for lots of other students. for low-income students. Exactly. Absolutely. What need blind really means is that applying for aid won't hurt you in any way. So it is kind of really mostly aimed at the people who are so concerned that, oh, if I need money, they're not going to admit me. It takes that completely, whoops, out of the equation. So, <laughs> right. anyway. And what I would, what a lesson I would not take from this lawsuit is what I don't like about it is sort of giving fuel to the fire that the colleges say they're near need blind. Yes. but they're really not mm -hmm. development cases aside you know those people may always have an advantage in life and that that is not what need blind policies are specifically referring to if a school says it is need blind from our experience they really are there may be limited exceptions to that and i think the big one named in this lawsuit is off of the wait list yes. where and but schools will generally be transparent and actually say that on, on their website, they'll specify who they are need blind for and who they are not. Um, if you can afford to pay for a school and you're on the wait list, telling them so in that letter of continued interest can in fact help you at, at many schools when they do have that policy. But through kind of the regular admissions process, if a school says it is need blind from our experience, they are. So please don't hesitate to apply for financial aid if you need it. Right. On the question of the other lawsuit, the, yeah. the Supreme Court just agreed to combine a UNC lawsuit with one that has been filed against Harvard. Um, this is the result of a group of people who are actively trying to get rid of um, any type of 
consideration of race in college admissions. I'm not really going to dig into that today. We can see what the Supreme Court decides and then maybe talk about it. But whether or not you should be concerned about it, I would say if you are from an underrepresented population, then potentially this could impact the ability of a college to to consider what backgrounds people are bringing with them could add to diversity on campus. And again, diversity can be more than one thing. In this specific case, they really want to target or they're really focusing on how um, on the use of race in admissions. Um, what I would tell you is this. If you look at the percentages of students who make up the student bodies at both UNC, but also especially a place like Harvard and all of the, the very, very difficult to get into schools in this country, the highly rejective schools, they are heavily white and uh, wealthy. And so, you know, the idea that the race conscious admissions is harming that group of people is simply not true. So, you know, if we can all think about the, well, someone took my spot, but I'm here to tell you that no one's really taking the majority spot. You know, if, you know, the white upper middle class wealthy spots are safe as kittens. And I don't know what this lawsuit will bring. Um, That's a really big much bigger than we can probably handle in a Q&A today in the time yes. we have. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um, all right, we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we are going to try to get to the rest of the questions on our list. And we're doing okay so far, so we'll see. So don't go away. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're answering your questions, and we're going to jump right to it. Shannon, what do you have for me? I have a question from James. Uh, and he says, I'm not a parent, but rather a college and career counselor. Uh, yay, another counselor um, listening, which we love. Uh, counselor at a traditional public high school in Colorado. I'm an avid listener of your program and greatly appreciate your perspective. Just about one year ago, College Board announced that they were discontinuing the optional SAT essay portion, except in states where it is required as part of... Uh, SAT school day administrations. I was surprised to learn that Colorado is one of the states 
um, where it's actually legislated that schools must offer the writing portion at no cost to any student who wishes to opt in. Given that we are now in the registration timeline for our current junior class, I am wondering what your position is on the value of this optional test portion within the scope of admissions decisions, especially since the great majority of students nationally will not even have an option to do it. Bottom line, does the SAT optional essay now stand to hold any weight with admissions officers? Hi, James. I think it's worthless. I think that I would not be encouraging students to take it. The very fact that not everyone, in fact, nobody, unless they're taking it during, right, so good way, almost nobody (laughs) could take this even if they wanted to means that they're just not going to be considering it. I have not seen or heard from one college that says, well, now that it's no longer available, if you still figure out a way to get it to us, we'll look at it. Maybe Georgetown. Sorry, shot across the bio there. But um, I would say that I do not think it is valuable. I think it's something I would not have students stressing about or wasting their time on. When my own son took the SAT, um, it was still a possibility. I believe the first time he took it and I didn't have him sit for it because I personally saw no value to it in the admissions process. So I would say freely advise your students that they don't need that piece. I'm going to go out there and say, nobody needs it. (laughs) (laughs) Going on record. Fair or unfair. And, um, (laughs) but yeah, I have not seen it be impactful. Perfect. Next question comes in from Virgil through our Facebook page and Virgil first says, I love the show. My wife and I have four kids. My eldest is in eighth grade, and we are deciding on high school for the next school year. We've narrowed down our options to two choices, both private. One is very small and does not offer honors or AP classes. However, the school culture is strong and academics are solid. They say that their courses compare to many AP courses, but are better because they don't have to teach to the test. They argue that their classes offer far better depth of learning. Graduates of this high school attend a wide range of schools from selective to community colleges. Because the school is small and relatively new, they don't have an established reputation with colleges outside of Oregon. The other school offers many honors and AP courses, and because of its size, it also offers tons of extracurriculars. The school culture is strong, and the girls who attend this school are serious learners and 100% go on to four-year colleges. This school has a very strong reputation with colleges all over the nation. We see pros for both options. Which high school would best prepare our daughter for college and college admissions? Got it. Really good questions here. And I would start with a bigger question, which is what is the end goal? And I don't really mean where do they want to go to college, but what I really do mean is what is the, you know, at the end of the four years in high school, I think the end goal, especially because based on your question, is that A, they are going to go on to college, but that they're prepared for whatever the next phase is. And I do think, and certainly, We're guilty of this because this is what we spend our time focused on. We focus on college and on getting students ready to apply to college. But high school is its own thing. And high school is a time where your daughters are going to uh, grow both academically and socially. And so what I would focus in on the most is the place that has the environment that you feel is best suited to your daughter. So um, you have four. I don't know that they're all daughters, um, but you have four kids. And I only have one child. I do have a stepson. But one thing I hear from my my friends who have more than one kid, Shannon, um, is that their <laughs> kids are, are usually pretty different. So the other thing that it could happen, right, is that one, one place that is right for one student one of your kids might not be right for the other. And um, I'm thinking even of in my own personal life where I was um, a scholarship student at a small private day school for high school that I loved, that was a great fit for me. And my brother was went to a not as small Catholic school that was closer to home. And um, 
because they it was really a better place for him. They had a much more robust sports program, and he was really a talented athlete. I was not, um, so there were the the two places were different, but they were well suited to each of us. And I would say the same thing here. If the goal for, if you have a goal for your children that you want them to get out of Oregon for college, well, then that is one factor that might be in favor of the second school. But I certainly wouldn't rule out that the first school is a place from which they could get out of Oregon for college as well. You know, by the time they graduate, it's only eighth grade. That school may well have established itself outside of the state. So they're in the earlier phases now that could grow. The other things I would look at are the level of competition. You know, at a school where 100% are going on to four-year colleges and there are a lot of APs and honors, how much pressure is there within the school to take all of those courses, even if it might not be the best path for that particular student? Does the first school, um, is the way that that's structured, does that impact how people feel about, oh, well, I have to have this more advanced course, or does it allow for um, making choices that are really better suited to to the student? And my questions might make it sound like I'm favoring one over the other, but I'm really not. I really, they both sound wonderful. I just think the question is, which one is the most wonderful for your individual child? And so that's how I would really look at it. Um, stepping beyond the, you know, which one has the better reputation or which one sends students to the most prestigious schools. And I, I don't think you're super focused on that because you've narrowed it down to two schools that sound like they have slightly different outcomes. Um, so I would really focus on that. And Not to also leave out the extracurricular piece, right? So if you have a child who's really involved in a particular area or activity um, and one school has a lot in that area and the other school has nothing, um, well, maybe it's possible that the other school could start something at your child's request or that they could get something new going, maybe a new sports team or a new club organization, right? But if they are... If the op- options are limited, they might always be limited. And is that going to be a negative for the first school versus the second? So um, here's where I know it would be nice if I could say, this is the choice. This is the one. Yeah. But I really do think at the end of the day, it very much comes down to your individual student and what is right for, for that particular student. And, you know, you might be going through it all over again shortly, right? So So the the bottom line question is, I think, where will your student thrive? And that that thriving may encompass the college admissions process, but it's much bigger. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Good way to succinctly sum up what I... That's what I'm here for. (laughs) All right. All right, Shannon, we're going to do our best. We got a couple more here and I'd like to get through them. This next one comes from Bruce via email. Bruce asks or says, we're in California. My daughter applied to a number of UCs and Cal States, which we can afford, and also applied EA to University of Oregon, Fordham, and Madison, Wisconsin, where we would need some scholarships. Due to our income, we will not be eligible for any need-based aid. However, I heard on your podcast that some schools require the FAFSA to be considered for merit aid, so I submitted our FAFSA at the end of October. She was admitted to University of Oregon Clark Honors College with a $10,000 per year merit aid. She was admitted to Fordham, but no word on merit yet. I reviewed Fordham's website, and it seems like they might want the CSS profile too, so I emailed them for clarification. They responded today. The free application for federal student aid and CSS profile are required to receive maximum consideration for all types of aid, including Fordham grants and scholarships. I find it hard to believe they want so much detailed financial information, i.e. the profile, from us when we are not requesting any need-based aid. Have you seen the CSS profile required for merit aid only consider for merit aid only consideration before? Should I be surprised or is this normal? Yeah, so it I would say it is not uncommon. <laughs> Uh, is probably how how I would put it. Um, so I will say the we happen to have insider access to Fordham. We have actually a number of people uh, on our staff who previously worked at Fordham. So I went to this 
them with this question to confirm my suspicion, which which they did confirm. Um, so specific to Fordham, I can say, and I think this will, uh, there'll be lessons for many schools here. Um, while they require the profile to um, distribute any merit scholarship money to you, um, the details of your finance, finances will not affect how much merit scholarship you are offered. Um, you will never, from Fordham at least, and I think this could apply to a lot of schools, get less merit scholarship money based on anything that is on the profile. What it could change is where the money comes from, or if you ha- end up having some need-based aid eligibility, you could actually see more. So essentially kind of no downside in, in completing that profile. So what is going on here, and we have talked about how the FAFSA is sometimes required. Um, I probably could have done a better job in articulating at schools that require the profile. Sometimes, not always, the profile is also required. Um, so, And we've talked about how schools might require financial aid applications to be considered for merit, sometimes just to confirm your U.S. citizenship. That is done through the FAFSA. Sometimes it's sort of a a measure of how price sensitive you are. If you file an aid application, they think the money matters to you. So that, that leads them to consider you for merit scholarships. Sometimes... It is only really for accounting purposes and having a full, sometimes financial aid application on file helps a college spend their funds in the most efficient manner. So schools have many funds at their disposal in terms of what they can award in terms of discounts. There's government financial aid. There's merit scholarships from the school. There's need-based grants from the school. There is often endowed scholarship funds that folks have donated to the school. And getting the most detail about you as possible helps them to spend those funds efficiently. So you have said in this question that you don't expect to qualify for need-based aid. The only way they know that is if you file a a full financial aid application in in Fordham's case. Why they care is it affects their accounting. If you end up qualifying for need-based aid, maybe they have more of that money. So they would spend it out of their need-based funds. They could use some of that merit scholarship money that you would otherwise get and give it to somebody else who doesn't have need-based aid eligibility. Certainly, if you had government financial aid eligibility, they would much rather give you that money. So freeing up more money for them to spend on other folks and, and other things. Um, so they want to find out if you have government financial aid eligibility. They want to find out if you have uh, eligibility for any very specific endowed scholarship fund that they have that has very specific requirements. They can get that off of the profile. So that's why they require it. it it's not super common, but not uncommon. So do it. No downside. All right, Shannon, thank you so much. And thanks for joining today. Next week, Ian is hosting. We're talking about financial aid awareness. Um, If you have to major in business to be successful in business, no. Talking to your school counselor about working with a private counselor. Should you have that conversation? And if so, when? And uh, don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.